Hey, babe. Yeah, babe. The love witch will soon be killing another man. Oh my god, is that the movie we're talking about today? The love boat? Yeah. No, the love witch. Oh, shit. Yeah. Oh my Women god. are not boats. Sorry, I confuse that every single time. It's a really weird, weird way to insult someone. <laughs> Hold on, I actually think I can do this. Okay. So you know how they would do those trials for women who were accused of being a witch and they would throw them in water to see if they floated or sank? Yes. Boats float, but sometimes sink. So a boat is a witch if it sinks. No, a boat is not a witch if it sinks, but a boat is a witch if it floats. Boom. Done. And that concludes our episode. Uh <laughs> Women are boats. Women are boats. Thesis statement. Um, anyway, hi, I'm Nicole. I'm Topher. And we're the Horror Babes, and we're here Correct. to talk about horror. Um, as usual, we're going to go through who made this thing, who was um, in it, and then we'll talk about the plot, take you through it a little bit. Then we're going to look at some themes and do just a little bit of movie analysis, and it's going to be great. So put on your bell bottoms, your Clarks, your 70s dress. And let's get groovy. So, The Love Witch. Who made this thing? Came out in 2016, right? Yeah, so... Uh, released, which I didn't yeah. I didn't know, which is just is a credit to them making it. Like, when I, when I saw the uh, previews for it, I was like, why is this, like, 1970s movie, like, resurging or something? Like, what <laughs> is... I was really confused. But now, I get it. And I love it. Yeah. Well, it hit the festival circuit in January 2016 and got a theatrical release later in the year in November. Mm -hmm. This is another one from director, uh, writer, producer, editor, costume designer, music person, Anna Biller. Amazing. She is the most hyphenated multi-hyphenate. She's like John Carpenter in that. I know we talk about him all the fucking time, but she does what he does, which is she shoots it. Well, she directs it. She writes it. She does the music. She does the editing. Like I know she did the costumes, too, yeah. which is incredible. These costumes are fantastic. Like I was sitting I was sitting over here when we were watching it, just like mouth open dropped like at just like the gorgeous costuming that was done in this movie like i want to be this freaking witch you know fair driving in her her uh convertible mm -hmm. with that eyeshadow blue eyeshadow is coming back I'm she had you. a bunch of different ones too she had a purple one it always like one. matched or sort of complemented her outfit and everything it was great Most stuff. so well done absolutely let's see so in terms of who's in it, we have Samantha Robinson as Elaine. Yes. John Keyes as Griff, the the cop. Mm -hmm. uh, Laura Waddle as Trish, the Landlord British landlady. Slash friend. Yeah. 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 Jeffrey Vincent Paris as I wanted that to be Vincent Price mm. <laughs> as Wayne, one of her uh, one of Elaine's victims. Jared Sanford as Gan as the the Gan's the warlock. Robert Celia as Richard, Trish's wife, and one of Elaine's conquests. Jennifer Ingram is Barbara, her friend and also kind of landlady, or like who had the room before her or whatever. Yeah. Among others, but for the most part, yeah, this is, that's the sort of general. Yeah. I, Samantha Robinson is legitimately like if Lana Del Rey and Casey Musgraves had a baby. 
Absolutely. And that's what makes this... She also looks like... Um, so there was uh, this actress and pop singer from Spain, which I really think that her character was modeled after. Like, when they were doing casting, this had to have been in discussion. Um, Suzanne Corda or Soledad Miranda is Mm -hmm. the two names that... Her stage names that she went by. She was in, like, several films directed by Jess Franco. Yeah. Who also went by, I think, Jesus Mm -hmm. Franco. And this movie really took some inspiration from, like, Count Dracula and um, She Killed in Ecstasy. Like, if you watch certain clips from there, it just, it's almost identical. Right. It's really cool. And and the actress looks exactly like, I'll call her Suzanne Corda. She goes by, like, several different names. Sure. But Samantha Robinson looks almost like a spitting image of this other woman. That's awesome. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah, I like that a lot. Other than that, and yeah, and then I guess I've named everybody else who worked in the movie because it's all Anna Biller, except for the cinematography, which is done by M. David Mullen. Cool. Who is another, like sort of legacy guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's been around for 30-odd years. Yeah, which you wanted to talk about him later once we get yeah, to production stuff. Yeah, we're going to go stuff. deep in on him. Yeah. Cool. So you'll hear more about him later in the episode. Yeah. Uh, um, not sure what the budget was on this. I couldn't find a number for that. I know mm-hmm. it brought in about 250000 at the box office. Yeah. So not a big return, but it was not supposed to be. I think it only... Sh- uh, I think it only screened at a few, like, art house theaters. Makes sense for, for what it is. Yeah. Yeah. So if that's wrapping it up for production, let's get into plot. What happens? Yeah. Well, I guess really all you have to say is, Oh, the love witch is a lovely little witch who loves to make sex magic. A love witch baby. A love witch baby. I love how much effort you put into this podcast. I Look, I go (laughs) fucking hard for this podcast. (laughs) Oh, my God. I think that's my last song parody for the day, though. Oh. We'll see if I have another one. Rule of threes. All right. So what happens in this movie? We open with Elaine driving down the Pacific Coast Highway. Mm -hmm. The one, if you will. She is just wind in the hair, top down, smoking up some cigarettes, loving her life. She's a dream and a vision. (laughs) I love it. Simultaneously. She's pulled over by a cop who tells her that the her taillight's out. And she's like, oh, thank you, officer. A very hot cop, too. Hmm. He's ugly because all cops are ugly, but... I mean, fair. So she's moving to Arcata, and she has been recently widowed somewhat mysteriously. Mm-hmm. It definitely sounds like she killed him. So, yeah, well, he right. drinks poison, and you see him fall to the floor after he drinks something. Right. Um, but he was abusive, so... Yeah, fuck him. Yeah. Deserved to die. <laughs> so she rents an apartment in this like gorgeous Victorian home that her mentor Barbara, who we hear mentioned a lot through the film and then eventually meet, mm-hmm. owns. And Trish Manning, the woman who decorated it, mostly at Barbara's behest, is the one who like kind of runs the joint. Yes. So Trish takes Elaine to a tea house, this like women's only tea room, as With- we've seen. Uh, this Joanna Newsome looking lady yeah. playing the harp. I was like, yeah. Big mood. So yeah, she takes you to this like women's only tea room, as we've seen in you know Gossip Girl or Miss Maisel. Mm-hmm. And 
they're trying to like get to know each other. Elaine sort of lays out her thoughts on love and sex and how to please men and why women should want to please men and things like that. Trish is Trish has that line like, "Oh, well, it's it seems been... like you've been influenced by the patriarchy or like yeah. something like that." <laughs> and she's like, "I actually have the exact thing that she says about men." So Elaine says to Trish, "Men are like children." They're very easy to please as long as we give them what they want. And Trish kind of sees this as like a submission, but Elaine sees it as like, I'm motivated by what I want. Like, I know how to mm-hmm. get what, like, I'm giving them what they want, so they'll give me, she treats she it kind almost of. almost exactly like that. Yeah, it's transactional. Yeah. yeah, she treats it as like stepping stones to get like the reciprocity of like, they'll love me forever if I yeah. coddle them or give them sex or, right. you know, be the perfect woman for them. Yeah, and yeah. she gets to have what she wants, which is love and sex and mm-hmm. or some version thereof. Yeah, she's trying to make it on her terms exactly. is what it is. So yeah. it's not really submission, but Trish sees it as that because she's kind of like this straightforward feminist that we right. see today. Yeah, she's your typical white feminism. Yes, exactly. So Richard, Trish's husband, shows up immediately just falls head over heels in love with Elaine that we can see him have like this moment or at some least head over, head over heels and horny with Elaine. Yes, Trish doesn't see that because he's behind her. They, she introduces them. And so Elaine is like, mm, you know, I need a new lover. So she performs a ritual to find one and meets Wayne, a literature professor at the local college. Mm-hmm. So they get some groceries. They go up to his cabin and he immediately tries to have sex with her in the car like they're in high school. Yeah. And she's like, I'm going to go make the food. So she makes like yeah. some steak and veggies or something. She puts uh, hallucinogens in his drink, and they have sex. He gets super emotional, clingy, freaking out, sobbing. He's like, I'm sick. Yeah. Elaine! Elaine! <laughs> like any man with a cold, he is oh, just yeah. miserable and useless and, and she's so like, sad. And she goes and just sits on the couch and smokes, just rolling her eyes. And she says, she says some line that stuck with me about, like, no one's ever coddled me. Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, like, what's wrong with this guy? Well, he thinks he was having a nightmare all night the next morning and says, I was calling for you and you never came and it was a horrible, horrible dream. And then he's like, where are you going? And she's like, I'm not going anywhere. And he ends up just dying. Yeah. Just <laughs> Has like a heart attack or something. Yeah. Blue face. Yeah. Just uh, dead. So she buries his body with a witch bottle that has her urine and a used tampon. And some and rosemary. rosemary. Yeah. Hey, don't. Rosemary. <laughs> I was not forgetting the rosemary. <laughs> Gotta get those herbs in there. And she l- puts her rainbow-lined coat on top yeah. of the, the... It's very rainbow bright. Yes. Like, they would probably sell that. Like, that's kind of the perfect thing for, like, Hot Topic to sell. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, it's, sold like, very mod, but, like, black on the outside. And then, yeah, the inside is, like, rainbow bright. Because they used to, like, sell those t-shirts that had, like, yeah. rainbow bright on them and stuff. Yeah. So Elaine sets her sights on Richard now mm-hmm. because she was annoyed by Wayne's obsession. Yeah. She assumes that because he's married, he won't obsess over her. Right. So Trish is gone for some out of town in like Dallas, something like that. And she, it, Elaine re- invites Richard up and also gives him another concoction and then seduces him with a dance. They have sex and Richard, of course, becomes obsessed with Elaine and she gets annoyed and abandons the affair. We see him with Trish later just drinking himself stupid and writing letters to Elaine. Mm -hmm. Letter after letter to Elaine. Now we get the cops. (laughs) The cops get involved. Yeah, because one of Wayne's colleagues reported him missing. 
and Griff, the cop, the highway patrolman, is now like some mega lieutenant or whatever. Major promotion, real fast from highway patrol to like having an office and being a lead detective. Yeah. In homicide and major crimes. It it helps the story. <laughs> yeah. So he and his partner go up to Wayne's house up in the mountains and discover the witch bottle. He traces it back to Elaine, who mm-hmm. doesn't. Who's like, I don't know who that is, or I don't know what that. I mean, she's like. Oh, yeah, I make potions and things, but that's not one of mine. Yeah. While Griff, the cop, is interrogating her, he ends up falling in love with Elaine. Elaine also falls in love with him. Mm-hmm. So this is very much like that Lana Del Rey thing you're talking about. She also fell in love with a cop. She sure did. So she finally realizes that, like, oh, this is what my tarot card readings were telling me. That you're the man I was looking for. Which I don't know how she got that, because she keeps pulling the Three of Swords, which is a harbinger of sorrow and heartbreak. It can, it can represent heartbreak, conflict, and tears, and painful mm. separation. Or, and maybe this is where she was getting it from, it can uh, represent faith, fidelity, and focus. Got it. I think so, it must depend on what order you draw it in or something like that. Yeah. Because I know that like, you draw threes, and she says something about threes, too. Yeah, I don't, I don't really know too, too much about tarot cards, but... No one does. But it makes sense. There is kind of like a rule of threes in, in this movie to the three men right the three of swords the yeah and she says something about the three men and the three of swords definitely like it's it's very overt it's not really like a symbol (laughs) like she talks about the it's explained it's kind of like dialogue number five with a bullet sort of thing number three like yeah so she ends up taking griff to this ren fair that her friends barbara and gan are very princess bride yes i love it (laughs) and it turns out that they're all members of her coven Mm -hmm. and they hold a mock wedding for them at the ren fair while they're out horseback riding Mm -hmm. griff's superior is like oh yeah look there's a real tense piece here between the witches and the town Mm -hmm. and you should just leave elaine alone as a and yeah, he's like, oh, Elaine's not a suspect, yada, yada, yada. Yeah. His partner is teach is trying to push him to be like, no, man, like, Elaine is, it's too perfect, yada, 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 like, it's too close. Yeah. He's like, she's not a suspect, and he freaks out at him. This is where we get all the suspicion, like, Wayne died of a heart attack and had devil's weed in his system. That uh, grew around his cabin or yeah. whatever. Jerry, her first husband, died shortly before remarrying from a drug overdose even though he didn't have a history of taking drugs richard kills himself in the bathtub by slitting his wrists so trish is just beside herself because her husband is just has just committed suicide so that's yeah a thing that you would be upset reasonably upset over yeah she takes elaine back to the tea room and she's so confused she's like wow i thought i had everything i ever wanted a man who loved me and was reliable but here i am and i'm all alone and you have griff and this is this is so odd mm-hmm. so elaine hands trish a ring that griff had given her during the mock wedding mm-hmm. and trish forgets to return it so this is when we find out the film's set in the present day trish takes out her cell phone <laughs> and calls her yeah abruptly find out it's set in the present day so trish tries to call her and says she's just gonna drop the ring off Uh, She does, and she actually starts snooping through Elaine's room. So she she puts on some of Elaine's clothing, or like her lingerie, and one of her wigs. Puts on her bad wig, too. I was like... I was like, this, like, Elaine wears, like, a little hair piece, and I'm Uh like, this is from, like, a shop. Um, And... And um, what's it? Trish puts on a friggin' Party City wig. Yup. (laughs) 
It kind of cracked me up. I was just like, I was like, ooh. Yeah, the difference between the two wigs was intense. Yeah. Real and polyester is just so Such stark, especially when you're shooting. Difference. We'll talk about like how they shot this and everything, but with the type of lighting they use and the film they shot on, that would be it's super easy to capture that. Looks like a cheap Halloween costume. Yep. But maybe that was maybe on purpose because Trish is becoming a cheap imitation of Elaine. True. Symbolism. Hey. Yeah. So she finally finds Elaine's altar after she's snooping and uh, finds out that, that that Elaine is the woman that Richard was having an affair with. Yeah. Elaine catches her and they fight and Trish leaves with her little bundle of Wayne. Yeah. It's like a little totem, like a, like yeah. a wooden figure mm-hmm. and then the ring or something. Or no, she's giving the ring back. It's like his love letters and things like that. Yeah. yeah. There's all just, there's just like accoutrement of his. Yeah. Of Witchy the, like, stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, Elaine's coven has been doing a love ritual for her and Griff. Mm-hmm. Griff goes to the the weird burlesque bar we keep seeing them go to. Mm-hmm. Which I believe the coven that they're depicting is related or inspired by Levian. Le- yeah. Satanism, which uh-huh. is Anton LaVey. Because yes. that started in California. Correct. So I think that that's uh, kind of what they're getting at. No, it's... Started in the UK, but it quickly got popularity. I guess. I guess what I mean is that, like in in the US, it was brought right, to the right, US right, right. in California, yeah, and then spread everywhere else. Correct. But yeah, I feel you. Yeah, we could. I could do a whole series on mm-hmm. Satanism and its practices and the occult, and it's super, really fucking cool. Anyway, yeah, had some Satanist friends. They're they're nice people. Great cookies. <laughs> so yeah, the the coven kind of. I, runs the burlesque bar it seems or there are many of them performers there yeah uh some of the employees don't like the new dancers the twi- the weird twins who cannot dance <laughs> i love that detail yeah and they pointed out and yeah the griff is there and elaine meets him at the burlesque bar and he confronts her about wayne and richard and her ex-husband and he's like look you're tied to both of them from dna evidence and takes Trish's items out the Trish the items Trish stole out yeah uh Elaine starts explaining that like yeah I do witchy shit but she says she says so I was a bad girl are you going to punish me (laughs) I love her she is she gives an impeccable stilted performance that's really hard to do mm -hmm. it's in the same vein as like a really good singer can pretend to be a really bad singer because yes. you know like you know the you know the difference and you can um see Cheyenne Jackson for reference. Right. Well also also I know this is uh, this is kind of left field but I promise I'm going to bring it back. The scene in Shrek where okay. Fiona is singing poorly and it makes the bird explode. Yes. They that's not Cameron Diaz. That is a professional singer right. that they hired and Cameron Diaz actually didn't know this until post like mm-hmm. the movie had come out and then they told her and she was like, wait, what? I oh, thought so that they was me. The, they pulled the David Prowse, uh, James Earl Jones switch. Yes. Yes. And so. That's they, a Star Wars reference for you. Yeah. Shrek and Star Wars. Like you're getting all the genres here. <laughs> um, so they had to, they had to pull like a professional singer to make it really, to make it really bad. Oh, for so, sure. Yeah. So in that same way, you kind of like, obviously a bad actor can do bad acting, but for it to be so stylized. Exactly. Is it takes a really competent. Yeah, you actor. couldn't do it by mistake. No, no, and all of this is is not by mistake. No, no. Um. So anyway, that was a little aside, but yeah. So Elaine explains, like you know, it's been a long ass time since being a witch was a crime. 
Yeah. Oh, and this is where I was like, wait, when is this set? Because she says something about 400 years ago. Oh, yeah. So when I did the math, if it was in the 19... 19- Seven. Oh, this. Okay, so the Salem witch trials were in like 1692 or something. That sounds right. So if if you catapult 400 years later, that's year like 2090 something. Yeah. So I was like, so wait, it could have been hyperbole. Obviously, she could have sure. just thrown the number out there. But I was like, wait a minute. So we have a cell phone, but we're set in the 70s, sort of. And but now she's saying we're in like year. 2090 something yeah yeah her math is off it it could be hyperbole but she's off by a hundred years yeah i don't know i i don't know i don't need her to say 330 years ago but yeah she was her ballpark was a lot larger yeah (laughs) griff starts explaining that she committed crimes even if those crimes weren't murder yeah he's really trying to send her to jail like he's really i think he feels betrayed here yeah. It's fragility of masculinity and all of that, too. Definitely, which I'm for sure going to get into that when we yep. do analysis. But the employees overhear their argument. I don't know how, because it's only being had at full volume. <laughs> yeah. How, uh, how and they start they yelling, just burn the witch. And there's a riot. Griff saves her yeah. and gets her back to the apartment. And he's, like, beaten up and everything. Yeah. Once they're inside, Elaine makes him a drink, but he just throws it on the floor instead of drinking it. Mm-hmm. He had told her that no man can ever love her enough. And she's like, oh, I damn, I guess you're correct. And she grabs her a theme. She grabs a fucking knife and stabs yeah. him to death. Mm-hmm. And now that Griff is dead, life has imitated art and matches the painting on the wall of them. That's exactly what I said, because it yeah. literally shows the painting. And I'm like, well, life imitates art. Exactly. <laughs> so there's that painting that she'd been working on, and it's the woman who cuts out the heart of the man, and it holds it dripping. And yeah. they're dr- the characters in the painting are dressed like they were for their wedding. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so she sort of the movie finishes with a shot of her just sort of reminiscing in like a delirious sort of way. Uh, that they are at their wedding and Griff actually proposed. Yes, and that's it. Movie over. I love this movie. I'm okay with this movie. Yeah, you're a little more on the fence than I am, but from, like, top to... I mean... I'm such a sucker for aesthetics, and I'm so. If you've listened to this podcast before, you know that I'm obsessed with the story of Rosemary's Baby. I don't. I don't endorse problematic directors like the person who directed Rosemary's Baby, but I love the '60s and '70s. It's just one of those eras that, like, I really enjoy the decor. I enjoy Blitz, the fashion. Glamour, I enjoy. Yeah. So right off the bat with this movie, I. I think literally when she started, when I saw her in the car smoking the cigarette. Um, you I said was, it from the first scene. I said, oh my God, I love this movie. I don't yes. even, I, I'm like, I really hope it doesn't fuck up enough for me to like change my opinion because I'm, I will be really upset. And and it didn't. I, I really, of course there were some, it, it's not perfect. It's not perfect. No. But it's really fun. It's a... It's a pretty short watch. Isn't it only like an hour and a half? No, it's a full two hours. 120 minute runtime. Oh, well, it didn't feel like it because I was enjoying myself. No, the myself. pacing is very well done. Yeah. And it's, it's but it's a pretty, it's a, yeah, it's a pretty easy watch because it kind of reflects those older horror films and with like the witches mm. and it touches on some really interesting topics that I'm really excited to talk about when we get to the themes of, of, of it all. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I guess I'll front before we kick into everything yeah you love this movie for everything that it is and again you say it's not perfect for me i think not trying to be difficult not trying to be oppositional or whatever it just feels as as even though 
everything is very, very intentional and stylized, and it's all in this sort of tight, well-paced, mm-hmm. well-shot package. It feels clumsy to me. And I'm not sure 100% why, but we're going to talk a little bit of my reasons for that. But basically, yeah, I just I think it's for all the good things about it, it just doesn't land for me. And I think it's because it is it feels a little clumsy. It feels like they right. were kind of caught up in the stylization and choices that were mm-hmm. made throughout it. And it just is a good movie. It's very it's a it, it's a, a movie that I really enjoyed mm-hmm. for the most part, but it doesn't feel like the most it doesn't feel like the most competent filmmaking I've ever seen. I understand that, and I want like you could argue that that also was intentional, or maybe not. You yeah, know what I and mean? I think I think that there's a through line, and I think that there's an easy excuse to say I, I'm going to talk a little bit about this as well. I think there's an easy catch-all excuse here. I was, but yeah. I think that that's mm-hmm. I think that that's itself lazy. Yeah, and I'm 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 open to that idea. I mean, I I don't need a movie to be perfect for me to love it and for me to watch it a thousand times. No, not at all. Um, but I also do understand the other side of the coin, where like movies that have certain things about them sell them easier to me. Sure. And and you are more you're more into like the innovation and the you know like how they made this and these like smart choices and stuff. But for me, it's, it's a little, it's a little more of like, it's a little bit more of like the development of the characters and their relationships and why they do things. And, and also I'm a sucker for aesthetics once again. Yeah. Um, If, if a movie is aesthetically pleasing, I will probably watch it a thousand times, whether it's a good movie or just an okay movie. It's fine. Yeah. I mean, I, and I, I don't mean to say that I'm not that way either. I definitely, there are, certain shows or like particularly cartoons mm-hmm. uh like I, I love anime and i love cartoons yeah. in general mm-hmm. because it gives me something really cool and interesting to look at yeah and i will occasionally forgive bad plotting or stupid dialogue right for a strongly aesthetically pleasing show gundam wing is like that for me yeah i adore the aesthetics of Gundam Wing. I think it is the, one of the coolest looking things I have ever seen. That show is boring as fuck for the most part. Like, right. it's 50 episodes of decent or boring episodes. Right, you know? but this movie just didn't do it for you. Yeah, I and think that this okay. is one that I, I am fine with. It doesn't blow me out of the water, though. Yeah. And even though there's a lot of really cool things about it, and I, it's a movie that I would love to discuss, but I don't know that I'm going to watch it a hundred times more. Cool. It's not my new, you know, Evil Dead 2. Yeah, no, I got you. I totally got you. Okay, so I fully, I fully understand um, this movie. Maybe not like blowing, blowing you out of the water. I get it, but I personally am going to watch it a thousand times again. By all means. Also, just because I want to emulate her makeup, I want to be her. Like, oh, she's stunning. Good God, yeah. Also, her friend Barbara. I was really struck by her too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Some really pretty people in this movie. Mm-hmm. All right, what was the first thing we wanted to talk? You have our outline over there. Yeah. <laughs> first, we it's going to be kind of all wrapped up together because I think the themes of the movie are all, are all wrapped up together. Oh, most Everything definitely. is in- is seriously intertwined. Like, I have yeah. a really hard time. I had a hard time outlining this for us because it is so... It all wraps around each other. Yeah, yeah. like, I can talk about the thing and say that like okay the cinematography is not necessarily uh wrapped up in the character design is not really wrapped up in the production design is not really wrapped up in the story yeah 
and I can kind of discuss them individually because they're done by individual people. Yeah. This is a thing that happens when you have someone who does everything. Yeah. A lot of times, I know I just referenced Carpenter and said that that's, even though he's one of the people who does this, yeah, who does everything on the set, mm-hmm. this one is different. I would compare this to Halloween in terms of how all wrapped up it is together and how it all, everything informs each other. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, I can't pick apart the fact that the cinematography, I can't pick apart the cinematography and take it away from the fact that this thing is shot like an old Technicolor film or take away the fact that it was shot on 35 millimeter or that it is shot using hard light or that it... All of these themes harken back to the central theme of what is feminism in the present and looking at it through the views of the past. Yeah, because it's... Oh, sorry, the views, but the lens. It's an, it's, it's an ever-changing thing. Just yeah. when you hear other people's stories and just their viewpoints on it, it is an ever-changing entity. I, I think I want to start just by talking about Elaine as a character. Um, Great. What fuels her, what, you know, why she does the things that she does, maybe, you know. Right. Um, speculating here. So, Elaine has faced trauma, right? We, Correct. We know that um, her ex-husband was abusive. Mm-hmm. We even get, when she's sitting down doing her makeup, we get, like, kind of, like, some flashbacks where we hear the voices of, like, her father and her ex-husband kind mm-hmm. of t- saying, like, she's ugly She's fat. She's a bad housewife. Yeah. Sort of thing. Um, and so she's she's a woman who has faced trauma and also has the desire to be loved by a man. Right. Right. Those are kind of like the two things that we know up top. Mm-hmm. And her coping mechanism or she she's so she's internalized the idea of changing for a partner. Correct. Which, yeah, 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 for sure. Which a lot of females have, trauma or not. No, right? I, thought, I, I thought that was very recognizable. Yeah. But also, she kind of weaponizes her uh, sexuality. Absolutely. It's I mean, her... she's, like a, she's a femme fatale type. Uh, yeah, absolutely. She's uh, Kim Novak in uh, fucking Vertigo. Yeah, yeah. She uses it to get what she wants. She even, she says to Trish, she attempts to turn sex magic into love magic. That's right. But throughout the entire movie, she she maintains agency and individuality. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it, she's not, um, she's kind of sticking to her own ideas of feminism. Uh, Trish doesn't really sway her. Um, no. She kind of is just set in, in, in how she's doing things. She realizes something at the end that's her character arc and ultimately kills Griff. But up top, she's a woman with agency. She is, a, is an individual who is, has decided to use her sexuality to get what she wants. Yeah. And is empowered by that. And there's no problem with that because... In a quote unquote man's world, you mm-hmm. have to use these tools for survival to get what you want, right? I think that's the that's the thesis statement here. Yeah, it's kind of climbing the ladder. I think that's what this movie is kind of trying to um, tell us. This whole movie is an interesting look at feminism mm-hmm. um, because because in the uh, coven, Elaine and the fellow female witches, uh, how they're initiated is through sex with that old high priest. Yeah, with so, uh, Gan, yeah. Yeah, which the men... The warlock. The men don't have to do that. Correct. In the coven. Yeah. It's, it's, so the women are treated differently, and they're treated in a more sexual manner. That's how mm-hmm. they're initiated. So that's also an interesting look at feminism, because if it's 
like a consensual thing, like you're saying, like, I know that I have to do this to join this, but I'm okay with it. Yeah. Then more power to you. Like, if that's mm-hmm. what you want to do, then fucking do it. It is kind of weird that it's uh, only the females have to perform a sexual act, but I don't know. It's it's a very interesting commentary on the way that we view feminism right now. Well, and it's historically accurate. Um, yeah, absolutely. So I don't know if you have this in your notes or not, but this is something we were talking about during the film last night is that I one of the things I just weirdly know a lot about is witchcraft and Satanism in the in like magic with a k yeah like a ck yeah in the united states it's just something i've learned a lot about for some reason partially because it's super interesting it is interesting but there's a really really big problem with the supposedly radically ethically radical Mm -hmm. societies and uh, uh subcultures yeah so it's i'm reminded i was seeing this sort of conversation happen on Twitter the other day and there's too many people who were part of it to cite but one of them said that there's nothing radical about men being into polyamory yeah because men have always been encouraged to or or nearly always been encouraged to have multiple partners yeah I feel that that gives one of those things that just sort of like a nice bit of serendipity that this I was watching this and I just read this conversation on Twitter the other day where somebody had said that. And so I was thinking about that in regards to Gan, the the warlock man. Yeah. And knowing that that is very, very typical for essentially sex grifters is what I want to call them. Yeah. Like the men who run these are still patriarchal societies, Mm -hmm. even though they are 98% women. Yes, absolutely. So all of these, like I've known a few people who are into witchcraft and I would say 99% of them identify as women. Yeah. And it is very, very telling to me that even though those 99, that 99% of female identifying people who uh, engage in this witchcraft and adjacent, like Wicca occult Mm -hmm. sort of things, Mm -hmm. almost every single time the leader of that coven or the founder of that coven was a man. Yeah. Yeah. And had some horrible views on gender politics. Oh, of course. Of course. (laughs) Um... Yeah, but just just to wrap up, like how I feel about Elaine as a character apart. Yeah, sorry, from, that was a that was a long roundabout. No, no, you're totally fine. Um, is that so? Yes, she's partially motivated by trauma, but she she enjoys her pursuit of men. She yeah. enjoys using her sexuality, and she enjoys her sexuality. Yeah, um, I would say the trauma is an inciting incident, if anything else. Yeah. Uh, it, it does not feel as if it's her motivation. It's just the thing that started her on the path. And those yeah. two, I love that those are separable. And that's a really good thing about this movie. Yeah. So because of her wanting to turn sex magic into love magic, mm-hmm. each man dies in some way yeah. through her doing that. And so I think what it's trying to say the movie uh, mm-hmm. speculating here once again I think what it's trying to say is that the men couldn't match her complexity and also that she that men are incapable of love magic I, th- I would ad- absolutely agree with that because that's the vibe I, think I that's was the getting message. while I was watching yeah. yeah is that the men die because they don't understand love they only understand sex well and because they the men represent com- very common tropes you've got the abuser mm-hmm. in the first one and then you've kind of got like the the teacher's kind of like this like free love like oh, he gives absolutely. off those vibes and then the third one the cop 
represents like the once I get to know you, I'm suddenly disinterested guy. I would even say the he's your best possible version, right? Yeah. I think that's what he set up to. Oh, and don't let's not forget Richard, the philanderer. Yeah. The uh, adulterer or whatever. Yes. Extramarital affair guy. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Who becomes obsessed with his mistress, but will never leave his wife, but kind of does in this instance. Yeah, that's a that's a good point, too. But, um, yeah, with Griff, the cop, um, I think he's supposed to represent this sort of all-American chiseled goodness. Totally. He's got that... And they he, cast this perfectly. Yeah, he looks like a young Robert Wagner. Square like jaw, yeah. like, all of that. But he's got this very classic old Hollywood handsomeness to him, strong looking you know broad-shouldered everything right Most you could have plucked him out of a night out of a 1968 film and just dropped him in here yeah. i'm surprised it wasn't you know like archive footage or something <laughs> that she was acting against absolutely uh but he definitely does represent this sort of has it all together he's got a, he's got you know what is con- traditionally considered a good job mm-hmm. he is gentle with her until the end he is weirded out by her love of the occult but he's fine with it yeah, it's her. It's he's like it's your thing. It's fine. It's fine. Fine with me. It doesn't it doesn't bother me? Yeah, until it gets in his way. Until yeah. it, mm-hmm. it it messes up his life, and then he suddenly turns violent and angry and can't reconcile. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Because, and I'm going to get into this a little bit more um, later. But magic is technically, and it's the way that she describes it in the film as well, that magic is just setting your intention and putting force in one, on one side. It's kind of mm-hmm. it's kind of like a Star Wars thing. It's like a force. Yeah. It's more of just projecting your energy onto one side. Sure. So, because putting of... Putting things in motion, yeah. Because of that, magic is is disruptive. And, and it unpredictable, can, yeah. And it can threaten an alignment of labor built upon cis male authority. Yeah. Which is why men were so threatened by women burning them at the stake, all of mm-hmm. that, because it mainly... It mainly was a male-driven thing, the the Salem Witch Trials and, yes. and the fear that revolved around witches that women could possibly be more powerful than what they had already built. Right. Yeah, because, it's a challenge to the, the authoritative structure and that makes sense. Because it favored them. Yeah, and yeah. he's a cop, which is an authoritative figure. Mm-hmm. So makes sense. I yeah. like that. That's what's well done. Yeah, and I'll, I'll get more into that a little bit later, but... What a lot of people think, just from what I've what I've read, different different views on Elaine, is that abuse survivor plus pressures of living as like a high femme woman, yeah, in a man's world equals a cracked psyche, and that her madness is what drives her to kill. I completely disagree with that. I do too. So I I'm going to invite the listeners to go on a journey with me mm-hmm. on this movie because it's not what it spoon feeds you it's more of like it's more of an abstract possibility of what this movie is trying to get across i'm gonna i'm gonna link this resource in in the comments or not the comments the footnotes the footnotes i'm gonna we put it in our episode description yeah yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna link this article that i read by annette lapique i thought it was a really interesting look on this film and i just wanted to put it out there so i'll have that article for you in the footnotes in the description so you guys i I encourage you to read it um but anyway so her killing spree could signify madness maybe if we're looking at it through one lens but i think it's more interesting to view it as an allegory of a sort of like transgressive 
birth. Walk me through that. Okay. Yeah, I'm going to. I promise. So she's freeing herself from a man that could be the death of her in so many cases. Correct. The cop especially. He's trying to put her away. And Angela Carter and the Marxist feminist Sylvia Federici. Mm -hmm. They're very different, but they both discuss ideas surrounding transgressive expressions of gender. Yes, yeah, so, I read a couple of them, and I'm really, I'm just really happy that you're reading philosophy. It makes me really happy. It warms my damn little heart. I know. Usually, you are the one who brings it up, but I think this is really interesting when it comes to feminism and how we view it, and how mm-hmm. we have viewed it, and how we will view it. And they're both very popular in feminist film theory. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I was reading up on both of them ferociously. So, like I said before, Trish represents a very straightforward feminist view yeah like white lady white yeah prototypical feminist. white fem- feminism yeah yes exactly um and elaine has her own desires right that but the conflict is that they intersect with gender expectations yes so that's kind of like the friction here and carter claims that these sort of like archetypes of witches that like they're gorgeous they've got like you know boobs popping out of their like mm-hmm. black dresses and they're like love potions love spells that like the baba bitch if you will yeah exactly exactly carter claims that that actually deprives women of their humanity and only perpetuates inequality because it encourages one to ignore like a unique material circumstance okay it, it, it just further puts women in a box and puts sure. them in a sexual box. Definitely. Is what Carter is trying to get at, I think. Um, that's how I interpreted it. That's how I interpret it, at least. Mm-hmm. And Federici's argument is that witches represent actively striving to dismantle inequality through, like, rebel economies and ways of living independent of capitalism. So... You've got the burlesque club and you've like the only working women you see in this movie is like the burlesque dancers and the woman selling elixirs. Yeah. And there's right? the one lady cop who gets yeah. uh, sexually harassed by Griff. Right. So, of course, we've got the only yeah. woman really participate. Like also the only woman of color in a film. Yeah, I think I think that's correct. Her and his partner, Steve, I want to say, are the only people of color in the film. Sorry, that was... Would, yeah. yeah, which would love for that to be changed, but I do understand they are reflecting certain times. I don't know. Would love to have seen more... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, that, 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 that wasn't meant to derail. That was more just, like, thinking through with you. Yeah, no, but I am saying that, like, I, I, I wish this film could be more diverse. I wish it was. Mm-hmm. I always wish that, honestly, which is a sad thing. Um, but anyway, um, so it kind of... It's kind of synonymous with the way that Elaine views capitalism mm. because being a burlesque dancer and selling elixirs is like a witch's version of capitalism. Sure, yeah. Historically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's it, it, that also kind of mirrors that, which is kind of interesting and cool and just something that I think nobody really you don't think about that. You don't you're just like, "Oh yeah, they're in a burlesque club, this lady selling." I was having this last in the film, but it's also just because I've read these authors do like I have that thought in my head of like yeah of like yeah no this is women's work so to speak women's wares yeah are their bodies and uh housework and I was just thinking about the lady cop again and the only thing that Griff says to her face Mm -hmm. is how great the coffee she makes is oh yeah of course so it's kitchen work it's it's yeah you know it's kitchen work house potion Mm -hmm. potions housework yeah the invisible labor of women yeah and then you've got you've got Trish who uh, 
who I assume makes money off of being, you know, a decorator, a decorator. Yeah. But she's also the only straightforward feminist we have in here. So that's also, Mm -hmm. you know, as far as like the views that we've been shown. So a quote from Federici on this is, witches are the embodiment of a world of female subjects that capitalism had to destroy. Mm -hmm. The heretic healer, disobedient wife, and the woman who dared to live alone. Yeah. So, thesis here. This movie could be an allegory for capitalism and how women fit. Sure. Could be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, again, indulge me for a second. Which, speaking of, Elaine indulges in, like, all of these men's egos, right? And that's mm-hmm. how she gets them to do what she wants like she she plays like a bad girl for you know one of the guys and then and then plays a coy virgin for the conqueror type yes right so that's again just another use of her sexuality to hopefully get love magic turn sex magic into love magic Mm -hmm. as she says but what happens is her different lovers in the film they kind of they dismiss or devalue herself beyond being a sexual being. Okay. They don't they don't want a real relationship with her because you've got again the guy who'll never leave his wife. Yes. You've got you've got the teacher who's just like wrapped up in lust or something and then dies from that or whatever. And then you've got the guy who is just disinterested after he gets to know her. Right. And so none of them want what she wants yeah what she's trying to get they want what she offers but not they only want the initial offer they don't want a long-term contract or something like that yeah 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 that's what it is and we've all experienced that i mean come on unrequited love sure so federici classifies the rejection as necessary under patriarchal capitalism as Magic is premised on the belief that the world is animated, unpredictable, and that there is a force in all things. And that's what I was saying earlier about magic is disruptive. Got it. And is threatening to cis male authority. Mm -hmm. So what this is, is kind of like a, a capitalist allegory for like, this is a game that she'll never win on her own terms. Right, because the system's... The functioning perfectly for the way it's supposed to. Precisely. And, yeah, one disruptor isn't going to throw the whole, a wrench into the whole plan. Precisely. So. Collective action is needed. And also that she's never going to be respected for her, like, quote-unquote integrity unless she's, like, quote-unquote successful. Like, like an entrepreneur. That's kind of, like, how she's viewed in this movie. Yeah. She's selling sex. Yeah. And she's not, quote-unquote, successful, so she's never going to be seen as a whole human. by these men. So now I'm going to go back to a quote from Angela Carter. Sure. Carter says, to be the object of desire is to be defined in the passive case. To exist in the passive case is to die in the passive case. That is to be killed. That is the moral of the fairy tale about the perfect woman. Mm -hmm. So this movie wraps up with her killing Griff, our cop. So... In this theory, it's a moment of escape. She no longer has to be the perfect woman. She's not killed. She kills. Yes. Therefore, the cycle is broken. Yeah, I guess it's her first active murder. Yeah. Well, and, and it, it aligns with what, she, what he makes her realize, 
right? What does he say? Uh, we said it when we were talking about the plot. Oh, yeah. Uh, he says something to her somewhere. that makes her realize that he's never going to want her in the way that she wants. No man can ever love her enough. No man can ever love her enough. And What I, she wants is too great. For a man to provide. Yeah. So I think that's kind of like a light bulb moment, like an epiphany. And I think that that ultimately is why she kills him the way that she does. Yeah. And that is the conclusion of my roller coaster ride of what this movie could mean. Yeah. It's fun to look I, at, at it that way. Yeah. It might not be what was intended at all. It might be picking it apart too much. But like, <laughs> I think it's interesting to bring in, you know, some feminist philosophy here. Yeah. I, I like that interpretation. I think it's interesting. It's it's telling that uh, Federici was one of the ones that Annette uh, Lupi cites because Federici is a like known, uh, you, you said it yourself, uh, Marxist feminist theory. Yeah. And there's a reason that those terms are listed in that order. Mm-hmm. It's not feminist Marxist theory. It's Marxist feminist theory. Yeah, makes sense. <laughs> was super popular for a long time just to just to place it in history uh was very very popular i think around this time okay uh this is when you started seeing not necessarily federici herself but the although i think she was i'm trying to put it in i'm trying to remember what decade she really popped off in but uh, a few of my professors from grad school and undergrad were students in you know the 70s 80s when Marxist feminist theory was really, really having a, a field day. I think it was well, 60s and 70s when it was really having, having a field Having a day. moment? Yeah. Because there's, <laughs> yeah. there's trends in every field of study. Oh, absolutely. And it's part of learning. It's learning, you know, use the trends, develop. That's a Hegelian approach to it or whatever. It's thesis, antithesis, synthesis, right? Thousand and percent. Hey, yeah. wrong about everything. But mm-hmm. that's an, it's at least a decent framework to see things in. Yeah. Just to, for understanding them. They're not, not how they actually are, but it's not useful for understanding, yada, yada, yada. Yeah. So yeah, it's 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 funny that this does kind of line up the. This is where I was getting at earlier with everything in this movie is intentional, and we mm. were talking about this off mic as well. But it's it's very telling that that is plausible simply because of the rest of the way this movie is made. Mm-hmm. Because Anna Biller would know that. Yeah. As a student definitely. of feminist fil- film theory from Cal Arts, like yeah. mm-hmm. all of that, I think there's a little something different going on. And not to say that like, two things yeah. can be happening, right? So there can be two yeah. interpretations of a theme that are both equally valid. Yeah. Give it to me. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm dying to know. This is why I love doing this. Yeah. I think the what I, I guess I should say what I took away from it in terms of the feminist theory going on in here mm-hmm. is a fetishization point. Mm-hmm. So I don't think Elaine's a hero. Mm-hmm. I would even hesitate to call her a protagonist. Right. She is the main character, but there are delineations between how we understand story structure. Mm-hmm. So I guess I'm going to get a little bit into let's we're going to talk about stylization a little bit here, yeah, because that's what I was focused on was the art film theory version of it. Yeah. So Anna Biller, uh, there's a quote I was reading through um, the Baltimore Sun mm-hmm. did their coverage on the Maryland Film Festival when this w- where this was on the circuit there, mm-hmm. and they had a pull quote from Anna Biller saying that she doesn't like reality that much she Mm -hmm. likes transforming reality Mm -hmm. so she doesn't like what things are so she what she really likes to do is transform reality yeah we've seen this in other films from her as well Vita was uh the last film she had before this and that came out in like oh six i want to say it's about about a decade prior yeah same sort of idea if this movie had been like a little a little bit more a little bit more ridiculous in a different way than it is i would have posed like 
dream logic. Like that's why we can have like a cell phone or like sure, whatever. Sure, sure. But I don't think it's quite there. I'm not claiming yeah. that it is dream logic. I just think it could have taken that route really yeah. easily. I think it's. Well, I'm gonna argue that it kind of is, but cool. not so much dream. Lo- <laughs> I but not dream logic. Magic. Magic logic. Yeah. Well, magic changes the rules, right? Yeah. So when we have magic, like um, I I. Some listeners will know, Nicole, you definitely know, I'm doing it later today. I run a D&D campaign. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I don't allow in my games is steampunk. Because <laughs> I hate it. But also because it doesn't make sense in a world with magic. Got it. Who would have inventions like gears and industry. When you have magic. Exactly. Makes sense. Uh, yeah. I've talked to other, other DMs, like players who want to use physics to solve their problems. Mm-hmm. Some of my friends and acquaintances who DM say absolutely not because what the fuck does physics mean in a world when you can create hands out of nothing? Yeah. Uh, matter can be created and destroyed. <laughs> and so that's a real fucking problem for physics. <laughs> right. So. The basis is a little thrown off if that. <laughs> right. Yeah. So that's sort of my theory going on in here. Mm-hmm. Um, this does exist in a parallel universe, so to speak. I don't like that terminology for this, but it's a quick and dirty, easy way to do this. Yeah. So essentially, they live in a world where magic is real. Yes. Well, I think we're explicitly shown that. Yeah. So what we have is... I was, I was trying to... I, I was you know sitting here this morning and last night and trying to like puzzle over what exactly it is about this movie that doesn't land for me. Mm-hmm. With the stylization. Because I was annoyed through part... Not annoyed, but just like, oh, that's interesting that they went so hard in the paint and got everything period accurate for Mm -hmm. the women, but not for the men. Yeah, you were mentioning, like, the different styles of suits and the buttons and... Which I don't know much about men's fashion, but... Yeah, you were were just mentioning that, that, like, some of the coats in the suits were a little off. Yeah, um, basically, most of the men's fashion is the sort of thing that you might wear 10 years ago in reference to that's like a throwback style yeah but it's not the same thing as it's not being, in the 70s right it's not yeah. in the late 60s early 70s yeah so like the the pants are too narrow in the wrong way yeah the materials aren't exactly right the lapel width is all over the place the yeah. suits are too button instead of being three or double breasted like all these sorts of small things mm-hmm. You know, it's all stuff that looks like it's supposed to be from that era, but isn't. Whereas all the women's clothing is absolutely from the 60s. Like, that is yeah. true to life what that would be in a Technicolor-style film. Mm-hmm. But the men's are all wrong. Yeah. So that's what started... That was my first clue, that it wasn't the actual 60s. That it wasn't a period piece. Yeah. So, and, and Anna Biller has said, I did not want to make a period piece. Because mm-hmm. then that's where she... That's where That was the predecessor to that the reality quote. She's like, well, if I wanted to make a period piece, I would have to be stuck in reality, and I don't want to be stuck in reality. Okay, cool. Fine. Great. That, um, that I'm makes... fine with the cell phones and laptops and DNA testing and all that existing, right? Yeah. That makes, that makes a lot of sense. Making a new world, sort of, and yeah. just pulling inspiration from these very sterile sounding movies from that time yeah that makes full yeah. sense she's cool. she's basically what she's done is not create an entirely new world because there are cell phones and laptops and so the just so the because magic exists therefore no technology doesn't work here yeah but it's because magic is reviled mm-hmm. it exists but it's reviled got it and so it, i there's a sorry i well, I was just I was just going to say that when you do when you watch kind of like the stilted performances in um, any 60s, 70s movie or 
television show, you kind of, especially today, you do feel like this isn't reality. Like, this is a weird, yeah, like... It's a, it's a style of acting. Yeah, it's, it's presentational. Yeah, kind of like I Dream of Jeannie yeah. or, you know, something similar to that where it feels very just like, am I in another dimension? Like, right. David Lynch does that really well with his He also casts. does presentational acting. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a very specific method um, as opposed to representational acting, mm -hmm. right? So you're presenting something to an audience as opposed to representing a scene. For sure, yeah. Yeah, and it, it, it makes you feel a little uneasy and it's... Yeah, it can be used, it's been used, like Waters uses it as a transgressive film style. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And she's been compared to John Waters a number of times, which I think is fair. Cool. So, okay, so here, I'm back to it. Yeah. So cool. instead of, <laughs> instead of, I'm going to do my own philosophy thing too. Great. I'm going to flex these muscles. Yes. So you mentioned, or sorry, I, I, at top of my, this little section, I mentioned parallel universes. That's not correct. What it really is, is David Lewis, one of my absolute favorite philosophers, one of my great best friends and I from grad school would always call him uh, old bullet mouth. Okay. Because he always bites bullets in his theory. Mm -hmm. He just, someone presents him with a problem, he goes, nope, it's part of it now. Got it. So he's always willing to bite the bullet on something because he thinks his theory is correct. Mm -hmm. Fun, fun little joke. Fun. Um, <laughs> it's cute. So old bullet mouth, David Lewis, he has a theory of possible worlds. So possible worlds is a big, big thing in philosophy, particularly in metaphysics uh, and real metaphysics, not occult metaphysics <laughs> and like astrology, yeah. uh, where we actually study the existence of things and not alchemy so what he proposes is that there are infinitely many possible worlds as you as one can imagine mm -hmm. and they are all literally real just not reachable and the way you distinguish which possible world is closest to this one you use this for like arguments and things like that mm -hmm. or like um like scientific modeling is another way to talk about this mm -hmm. you're creating a quote-unquote possible world yeah in, that you have to populate with ideas and things and people and mm -hmm. objects and forces and laws and all of this. Yeah. The nearest ones to ours are the ones that share the most things, but one thing is different. So when we talk about the Gothic in horror and just one thing is off, that's a possible world's description of Got it. horror. Got it. Right. Okay. It's a, it's a way to describe the genre in, a, in terms of possible worlds. Yeah. So I know this is still a long walk, but I think it's at least somewhat relevant to what we're talking to, to to i think it's somewhat important to set up what i'm trying to talk about here you you went along on my ride i it's only fair for me to go <laughs> along on yours so so i'm here yeah lewis's theory of possible worlds i think is a useful medium to explain what i think is going on here okay so now that we've got that sort of quick philosophy lesson out of the way here's the rest of it so elaine's world is one in which magic is real and has visible clear effects on the world yeah if randomized because magic is a little bit random mm -hmm. a little chaotic if you will mm -hmm. i think she creates the possible world right. so every action creates an infinitely many more possible worlds right hers is the belief in magic yeah she essentially i don't want to call it a dream Thing. I don't want it to be like um, um, Everwood or whatever, mm. but I want it to be like the whole world is an autistic child snowball. <laughs> right. Okay. Or snow globe. Yeah. But I want it to be that she, by force of will or by decisions that she's made, created a world in which magic does have actual visible effects. So I yeah. think up until the point that her husband dies, mm -hmm. magic was not a thing that is real in the world. Right. She generates a world from there on out. So we have a split rail here. Mm -hmm. 
and she is alive in this one. Maybe she dies in the other one. I don't know what happens in that one. I haven't explored it. Right. But in this, in the train track that we're on, she, or the like chain of worlds we're on, she has she has a world in which magic suddenly becomes active and real and physical, or like observable. Yeah. So we know that it's set in the present day, mm-hmm. based on the technology around it. That's why we have the tech. Yeah. And the magic comes in after that. Yeah. That prior to that it would not have been real. It's just a plaything, for all these people. Mm-hmm. But we see her use it for to real effects and with intention and all of that. So it becomes this world that's stylized in what she wants it, and it becomes a fetishization of a time period. Okay. I think that that explains a lot about the film. That that makes sense to me. So what it does explain is that the fashion's wrong. Yeah. It explains why. It explains all the inconsistencies, right? Yeah. That because she is 26 or whatever 25 i guess when this movie came out the actor so we'll assume the character is the same age Mm -hmm. because she's in her mid-20s when this happens she obviously would not have been alive for the 50s 60s 70s right all she has is technicolor movies she's got her tippy hedron she's got her barbara steel she's got you know hitchcock and and just basically the entire world of uh, like Hitchcock, Vincent Price, Tippi Hedren, Barbara Steele, all of those things that she's sort of stylized this world around. Yeah, I can vibe with that. And so because magic is real and she has the power to access magic, she has created this world, mm-hmm. this version of the world, I should say. But that's that explains all these inconsistencies that we're looking at. Yeah. Um, and why people act in a way that doesn't seem real and why all of this. It's, it's right. this sort of meta interpretation of the movie. But that's sort of what I, I'm kind of going for is that this is a very, very nearby possible world in which the only thing that has changed is that at least one woman has access to very real magic. Right. Right. Does that make sense? No, absolutely. And I think that, like you said, it definitely explains a lot of the um, inconsistencies with the fashion. Yeah. Um, and then the technology as well with the cell phone. We both were like, you could probably go to a pay phone. Like it was, it was yeah, very I thought it was a. I thought it was a weird choice to make. And I still but, think it's a weird choice to make, but this yeah. is my way of reconciling it. That's an interesting, it's an interesting point, um, especially after hearing that quote that she doesn't like to set things in reality. Exactly. She doesn't like to deal with that. Um, so Lewis is... There's a lot of yeah. whimsy. It's, it's a very whimsical yeah. way of making a film. Um, so yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm picking up what you're putting down. And so I, I think, you. yeah. And so that's why I was starting to like tie it back in. So the fetishization is sort of the feminist critique here is yeah. that or the feminist lens here so the fetishizing of a time period in which women had fewer rights yes less access to uh f- their their supposedly you know god-given freedoms mm-hmm. but state prevented or society prevented from yeah yeah accessing those is an interesting thing and it's also um that she puts herself in this era Right, she makes the world to be that era that she loves, the aesthetic that she loves, yeah, and is trying to foist her own 2016 yeah. views into that world, and therefore it doesn't work. Right, and she's so trying she's to in, dismantle something that. Okay, yeah, she's I, trying to re, and it, it it comes back to what you were talking about with the reshaping the world. Yeah, it go it kind of ties back into what. I was saying, right. like, trying to dismantle reshaping, something, dismantling, disrupting, but it's not working because it. She set this in in 
a time where it's just not going to work. Correct. So, and I think it could eventually, Mm -hmm. but I think she's impatient. I think she's a little bit incompetent. Yeah. And I don't think that that's for her own fault, but I think it's that she's overconfident and incompetent at the same time. And those two things tend to go hand in hand. Yeah. Um, and I, that she's trying to do something that hasn't, that's not supposed to be right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, she's told as much by at least Gan, who, you know, un- maybe he's reliable, maybe he's not. But I think Barbara says something similar too, is that you're sort of playing around with things that you shouldn't be playing around with. You're going too far. Yeah. She's a, uh, she's a Victor Frankenstein type, right? Yeah. She never stopped to think she was so obsessed with, or what's it, uh, what's this Jeff Goldblum say in Jurassic Park? You were so obsessed with whether or not you could, you never stopped to ask if you should. Yeah, yeah. I, I think she does fall victim to to that. Um, and I think that the, it's nice setting her as the protagonist because then you get this sort of tension of, do I trust her to be the hero of this film? Or yeah. do I think that she's a villain we follow? Right. Because right. um, there's a movie that I've been working on for a few years now that uh, you're involved in it with as well, where... It's the same idea that there is a woman who does what are traditionally considered ethically vile things, mm-hmm. but you're forced to see it from her perspective. Now, I take it that she is that my character is very literally a bad person, right? She just doesn't understand that, right? Whereas, or like she she has a she's a fucked view of the world. Yeah, I don't think Elaine is that. Yeah, I don't see that here. We already said that. I don't think she's mad. I don't think she's no. I don't think she's. I don't lost think she's a shit. scorned woman. No, I think that she's a woman who wants to shape or the world crazy. in her own image and hasn't found out how to do that because she's working with nothing. Yeah. Does that make sense? So she harkens yeah, back can, to the last time women had power. That. Yeah. In mm-hmm. a way, in that she goes back to this very traditionally femme or feminine, feminine, feminine. Yeah. Uh, version of women's power, which is witches and the occult. Definitely. But it's this sort of tension of eras is what I'm trying to think of here. Mm-hmm. So she's, it's not just that the seventies were just like a time that people weren't ready because they were, they just were, they just didn't want to do it. Yeah. There's no time in which it, we couldn't have been equal. It's just a matter of people refusing to be equal mm-hmm. or standing in the way of equality and progress and all of that. Yeah. But it's more of this like things out of time and the problems that that can cause. So when I talk about the chaos of magic or the uh, uh, unpredictability of magic and what I meant to say with the, the gay and Barbara thing is that she is doing something new and it's uncharted territory and she has no guidebook. She has no textbook. She has no resources other than to sort of fumble around in the dark. That's why these men keep dying too. Yeah. There's a dual, there's a duality here. I love the interpretation that they are just incapable of love or un- unaware enough of what love feels like mm-hmm. that it literally kills them. Yeah. But it doesn't work for Griff. Right. Because she kills him. She kills him. Yeah. Very clearly. But if it's a world in which magic hasn't existed until now, mm-hmm. then what's happening is really that she's fumbling around in the dark and just trying to make things work. Right. She's Elon Musking her way through this world <laughs> with about as much success. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it definitely does. See, I mean, and we see this so much with which, uh, which movies, right? Mm-hmm. It, it, because it, yeah, you have spell books, I suppose, or whatever, but think about like the craft. Think I about think this is, That's exactly where I'm think coming about, into this. Yeah. Think about all of those films where you've really just got someone who's like really interested in it, but because it's such an uncontrollable, it's like a, it's, it's a, it's almost also like a, um, 
the monkey's paw, right? It is exactly like that. Yeah. Like, be careful what you wish for or what you put out into the universe. Because you might because, actually get it. Yeah, because you might actually get it. And I don't want to go too full into that. I don't want to go too far with that because I want to say that I don't believe Elaine's being punished in either of the theories that we've present, been presenting. No. I definitely want to say in mine, I don't believe it's punishment. I believe it's consequence. Yeah. Does yeah. that check out where it's not mm-hmm. that she's doing something evil? It's that she doesn't know what she's doing. Precisely. She's overconfident in her abilities and incompetent because of that. And also because she's just new to this. And yeah. I don't think that those are bad things. I think yeah. that that's any novice. When yeah. I start, when mm-hmm. I first started working in philosophy or in, uh, in music or whatever thing I pursued, I thought I was the hottest fucking shit in the world. Yeah. And it turns out I was just a hot shit. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and so what I mean to say is that, like, I don't believe she's being punished. I believe that no. it's just that it's a natural thing to be overconfident in newfound abilities. Yeah. Agreed. Um, so I think kind of to wrap up like the themes yeah, section. Yeah, yeah, we've gone on for a minute on this, but I'm not yeah, mad about no, it because this is a fun and rich film. It is. It is. Um, I I think it's this really amazing tug of war between how people view feminism and how sexuality can empower you and kind of like one female's journey through that empowerment and um and then also what you were saying with the magic side of it be careful what you wish for or at least learn how to how to get what you wish for yeah does that mean does that make sense that she's getting something like it's it's not yeah yeah and it, it never really works for her and i love that this movie ends with her killing him i love that it's not it's it's not really a happy ending like yeah she's kind of uh, to my theory she's breaking the cycle in a way mm-hmm. but and it is kind of like this transgressive like birth by the end for sure but i don't know if it's necessarily a happy one realizing that you can't like if she still wants love from a man realizing she can't get that that that's heartbreaking yeah and i um, like mine because it doesn't it means that griff's wrong right it just means that she hasn't figured it out yet she's being a magic scientist i like to think of it that way too i i like all the different theories um in this movie and i don't really I don't really need a direct answer. I, I, I like talking about yeah, it. Yeah, I, I like talking about it, but I think that there's plenty to... This is where I think it's clumsy, mm-hmm. is that it's not clear in its messaging. It yeah, is on certain points. It's clear that this is, you know, a, an empowerment movie. This is like... A, it's an exploitation film. Yeah. All of that's fine with me. Yeah. I just don't know what Anna Biller wants out of it. I would just like a clearer thesis statement going into the film. I think that there's a big question that she wants to ask or a big statement she wants to make. And I don't know that she makes it because no one knows what it is. Got it. Other than, like, empowerment's cool. Got it. You know? Yeah, yeah. No, and I, I that's I where That's what I mean that. by clumsy, is that for all of the intentionality and, like, strong and clear decisions in It doesn't film, come to a solid conclusion. Yeah, and I don't yeah. need it to be, like, a black and white sort of thing, but I want to know what the director thinks of the film. You want it to be a little closer. Yeah, um, I, I just wanted it a little tighter there. Yeah. It's a little too fuzzy, and I just wanted it a little bit tighter so that I can know what you're talking about. It's the same thing I would critique my students for Yeah, when I was teaching. It's like, you think you've done something brilliant, and you almost have. It's like you're circling really, around it. Yeah. You're not yeah, landing. You're so close to getting yeah. somewhere, but you don't have a destination in mind, so you don't know where to land. Yeah. Okay, so now let's... You wanted to talk a little bit more about the production for side, sure. the yeah, cinematographer. Always. Let's get to it. Yeah, so M. David Mullen, like I said, he is the man who shot this. Biller was 
brilliant to bring him in as like the literal one other person in the crew. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there were a couple other people in the crew, but she was really smart to bring him on because he is known as a period specialist, uh-huh. particularly for this period. Right. So okay. he has shot like 11 episodes of Miss Maisel. That shows. Yeah. He shot some of Mad Men. And then in other, he's also, he's also very familiar with sort of like high stylization because he shot Den- Clearly. Jennifer, yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> he shot Jennifer's body in Debs. Nice. He's had a pretty good career. So they, they met at CalArts about uh, 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. He was a, a graduate student and she was an undergrad. Yeah. That's a great person to carry out her vision for mm-hmm. this movie for sure. Yeah. That's And he's awesome. been primarily an indie cinematographer. He's done a few bigger projects, but primarily he's an indie cinematographer. That's great. I love yeah. to, we love to see it. Um, so the reason, so the, the really cool things about the production of the side of this film, all of the, sh- so that the reason I say he's a, a, or sorry, where it shows that he's a period specialist is that all of the shot selections are exactly the shot selections you would expect from a traditional Technicolor film. Okay. So we can talk about reverses. We can, like, I can get into the actual names of the shots and things like that, but that's not that important. I don't think that's what most people are here for. Mm-hmm. What I mean to say is I can just leave it quick and dirty is that. I've seen so many of that era of film. That's what I grew up on with my granddad. That's how I got into horror was watching yeah. like Rear Window. Mm-hmm. Rear Window, yep. So mm-hmm. um, that 50s, 60s style of, t- uh, of filming, like House on Haunted Hill is is a huge influence on this. Yeah. Uh, all of the, anything Vincent Price up until the 70s, you know, all yeah. of these sorts of over crisp projected background films. Mm-hmm. And he would, and because Mullen is such a student of that era, and so mm-hmm. is Biller, mm-hmm. it made the cinematography just work. Like I, you could show that to anyone without the technology that's in it, and say, "Yep, that's a film from 1965." Yeah, and I love that because it's such a perfect replication of that style. Yeah, and ripping it off in a really cool way that we've already talked about why that can be interesting and why it works. Most definitely. It's also cool they shot it on 35 millimeter film. They, this was not shot digitally. Cool. They literally, they actually shot on 35 millimeter. I respect which, that decision. Yeah. Which is like, was the industry standard from the time movies started because Edison and, oh, I forget his name. Edison's like one of the guys who started the motion picture industry as mm-hmm. a thing. And he's a piece of shit. And there's a whole really cool history on that. But they invented 35 millimeter film, which became the industry standard until like 15 years ago. Yeah. 2002 to 2015 is basically considered the decline of 35. Mm-hmm. But every movie you've ever seen, <laughs> unless it was explicitly shot on Super 8, Super 16, or 16 millimeter film or whatever, then that's the standard. Though, yeah, everything you saw was shot on 35 until digital took over, and digital was made to look like 35. Right, right, got it, got yeah. it. So it's like this just really flexible, very useful, able to capture color in super cool ways mm-hmm. film. Like, the widescreen format became the widescreen format because of 35 millimeter. Gotcha. So it's another nice historical reference. No, it's, that is really cool. I Like I said, I respect that decision. I also That's love that. really cool. I also love they had it projected on 35 wherever those projectors still existed. Great. I love that. Yeah. I, there's just certain things about this that, like, the production side, I'm just like, mwah. Yeah. Chef yeah. kiss. For sure. So the other cool thing they did that was a really cool historical reference is that they used hard light. Okay. So hard lighting, so I'll, I'll get into two things here. Projected backgrounds and hard lighting. Mm-hmm. Both very, very clear references to the time period. Those were choices that were made for artistic reasons. People think that this is all just accidents, that these old films look the way they do. It's not. 
mm-hmm. um, because partially it was it was uh, solutions to problems. Mm-hmm. So we're very familiar with soft light, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's uh, what every influencer uses to take their photos. It's what a lot of like costume design is done in. It's meant to sort of give this um, airiness and like dream ethereal quality, and that's totally. why we think films look certain way. Like it's starting in I think the. You could say like the 80s and 90s is where you really see it. Fincher is a huge fan of soft light. David Fincher, from, uh, the director, is a huge, huge fan of using soft light. Yeah, it's like a it, dream filter yeah. is what I always call it. Like all of It Follows was shot in soft light. Yeah. There's not a single hard light shot in there. Mm-hmm. So that's to give you a sense of like distance from the film and or engage you in the film, like draw the draw the character or the audience in. It's like, a, like we were talking presentational and representational acting. Mm-hmm. Methods of acting, this is... These the, go also go hand yeah. in hand. Representational acting needs the soft light because it lets you f- know that that's not a hard surface in front of you. Yeah. And you can softly enter. There's, there's all this psychology behind stuff, like pop psychology that goes on behind these things. But the explanation is basically that it invites the audience and the viewer to see it as a soft screen in front of you yeah. that you could step into. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hard light is more like theater lighting. Mm-hmm. It is stark. It is a huge contrast in shadow. It's a big white-black difference. Yeah. So, like, when you, you, you know, doing white balance in photos or yeah. for shoots and everything. Yeah. It's you, harsher. Exactly. And it's yeah. meant to be that way. So, they use, like, um, Fresnel lights. But basically what it is is that it gives you really crisp shadows, hard edges, and keeps you from having, like, transitional edges and gradients. Yeah. And the reason it's done that way, and this goes in with hand-in-hand hand with the projected backgrounds, is that it brings focus onto your characters and makes them, it's almost like spotlighting them. Yeah. So they are made to be the focus, the uh, the actual points. And that was a thing that was done in older filmmaking mm-hmm. because of that. You were yeah. you, the studios wanted you to highlight your your lead actress or you know your I've already named all the actresses, but you know your your Clark Gables or your your Cary Grants or your Vincent Price's like they, these studios who owned these Makes sense. actors yeah. were like, "No, no, no. I don't care about the fucking set. Mm-hmm. Focus on Clark Gable." Yeah, you know, like show me Humphrey Bogart, don't show me the fucking plane. Yeah, and so that's the point that's where it started but then really innovative directors started making changes to that and using it in an artistic way you know it's taking the uh, humdrum and turning it into something exciting yeah so Tippi Hedren and the birds right Mm -hmm. the opening shot of this of the love witch is an intentional reference to Tippi Hedren driving down the highway in the birds and the reason they projected the backgrounds there was a practical reason it was unsafe to drive and film at the same time and you it it's just opening up a pandora's box of variables but also it has the they discovered that it has the effect of making you focus on the car and the actor because the background looks like shit yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) so they use it for that because it's a cool iconic shot too yeah you know like uh, like it was made iconic from that and and now it's just become a thing right you know it's it's funny we were talking yeah we were watching um a couple movies last night that we're going to cover soon and we were talking about how things are steeped in reference or sort of free of reference Mm mm-hmm this is one that's, you know, very full of historical reference, but I don't feel like it's oversteeped in it. Yeah. Because I'm the one sitting there going like, oh, fuck yeah, all of this stuff is really, really cool. Me and a couple of CalArts students are going to love that. A few people who went to UCLA are going to love that. Yeah, I got you. But it's it's nice that it has it and that you can use it and see it, but it's not it's not necessarily the point, mm-hmm. and I love that. Cool. So, Great. like I said, lots of things to love about this film. Something yeah. about it doesn't just doesn't land, I feel, because it's a little clumsy, but I, I do really, really respect this movie yeah 
I think there's a lot to respect about it. I love it. I'm going to watch it yeah. again tonight. <laughs> Thank Probably. you for listening to me go on and on about film. Hey, that's, and that's the, the name of the game. In production. That's the name of the game. And thank you, listener, yeah. for not turning this off and making sure we get full plays of our episodes. So, any final thoughts before Won't we you wrap this in. up? Give um, me some final thoughts. I've just been talking for a minute. My mouth is dry. All right. So, loved this film. Would recommend it for sure. As long as you go into it kind of knowing it is over the top and a little bit of, you know, mm-hmm. the acting is stilted, The uh, that everything was stylized and pretty intentional if you if you enjoy that you will definitely enjoy this film but yeah it's it's what was i saying last night it's it's good good gory fun there's not that much gore but yeah by the end there is yeah it gets real gory at the last second but it's yeah. very very like hyper it's very like silly gore yeah yeah it's, it's the kind it's, of thing that would have gotten you past the mpaa it's good fun yeah so yeah that's that's really what i had to say about it i think it's i think it's a lot about how you can personally define being a female presenting person for yourself and Mm -hmm. how that can empower you and kind of like the search for that and i think that that is is a cool message because we have different versions of feminism and throughout this entire film and i think that that is a little bit of a message there is that you can kind of create that for for yourself whatever empowers you fucking do that you know Mm -hmm. cool i guess really all (laughs) i have left to say on this is um Baphomet, take me somewhere we can be oh alone. I'm no. here waiting. No. All you gotta do is run. Oh, You'll be it. my princess. I'll oh, be a princess. No. I'm a love witch, baby, baby. Just say yes. I'm really sorry you guys had to hear that. Wow. He's upset with me. Okay. Anyway, so signing off. I'm Nicole. I'm a horribly offended Topher. And we're the horror babes. Uh, you can find us on Horror Babes Podcast um, on Instagram. You can find us at Horror Babes Pod on Twitter and HorrorBabesPod.com. All right. Until next time, I'm going to go deal with a very frustrated Topher. Bye, Bye babes. babes. I'm going to do some weird sex magic. As long as it turns into love magic.